easily there have been a million words written and spoken about black infant mortality and black maternal health. And our team has contributed to that total. But if you look closer, you'll see that these topics have been talked about and discussed for about 99 years. Some progress, thankfully, has been made. But in many instances, we're plowing the same field, we're reading the same books, we're saying the same words, and we're stuck in the same loop. Now, one thing we know about Americans is that we love a good detective story. So we've chosen to approach our work on black maternal health and black infant mortality in a slightly different path. We're going to approach it like a crime drama, a detective story, a thriller. Now I know what you're thinking. A detective story? A crime drama? What? Now we talk a lot about the preeminence of life in our country. That's a good thing. Life is valuable. It is something to be cherished. But even when examining the most conservative data points and metrics available, 7,000 black infants will die this year before they reach their first birthday. That's a lot of life that's lost. And it's been that way for about a hundred years. As Chardet said, is it a crime? Well, I guess we'll have to find out. You're listening to The Gap Podcast. Member of Congress Gwen Moore is from the 4th Congressional District in Wisconsin. She has been a leading voice on matters of Black maternal health and Black infant mortality. Let's listen to what she had to say in a congressional hearing in May of 2019. Chair now recognizes the gentle lady from Wisconsin, Ms. Moore, for five minutes. Thank you so much, Madam Chair. And I just want to thank this distinguished, distinguished panel uh, for the insights you've provided. We don't have research on that. We don't have data for that. We don't know. We don't have research. Folks, we need to research this. And um, I have uh, introduced a bill uh, that I hope gets passed that would also help us lean into why there's a disproportionate amount of sudden infant death syndrome and sudden unexpected infant death syndrome among um, women uh, of color as well. I think research and development is really at the root of this. And I think that a lot of our resistance to really funding uh, a robust research and development component, maybe because we always kind of want to blame the victim. Oh, they must have been on drugs. Oh, they just neglected themselves and didn't show up for health care uh, coverage. And we want to deny the structural barriers, the structural racism 
that is involved in this. So I want to lean into this for a moment. Um, things like nutrition, for example. Um, when you cut food stamps and cut budgets, I know, I'm, I, you know, I run a household. Food costs a lot of money and good food costs even more money. I remember my daughter whispering on the phone when she had her first child and was breastfeeding. I just have never eaten so well in my life. You know, and I was spending a fortune on food. When you start talking about the map that the gentlelady from Alabama showed us, um, and if you've got to travel, you know, 15 miles, maybe pay for an Uber, because there's no bus that gets out there, you might ignore swollen feet and just take it from your mama. That old girl, all of us had swollen feet back as long as we can remember. Um, and, and, and when you think about uh, stuff like diabetes among um, uh, Hispanic women, um, that's an educational process as well. Uh, American Indians who have a propensity toward diabetes that far exceeds other people. These are structural things that we're not leaning uh, into. And I guess uh, uh, cardiac disease, you know, if you're, I had the good fortune of becoming good friends with a black woman cardiologist. I mean, she's the first one that told me, girl, you may not feel the pains coming up your arm and hitting you in the chest because women don't present that same way. So I just kind of want you all to, environmental factors. I had my first asthma attack, shoveling coal into a furnace. So if you live in the city, uh, doctor your results that women in the city, you get asthma and roaches in the house and other factors that are not dealt with. Lead in the water, lead poisoning. These are factors that we need to research. And I just want you guys to agree with me in my last at one minute and 30 seconds. You know, we've got to do the research and pin this down because it's not just that women don't care about themselves. There are environmental factors, there's structural problems, there's access to healthcare, there's the environment, there's nutrition, um, and we need to, and access to birth control. Uh, and, and, and not having people tell us, you know, that we can't space our pregnancies. We need to make sure that we take some of the elements of structural racism out. And, we, and if we were to do the research, we would find out that these things are predominantly the factors. I'll yield back since you guys don't have anything to say. Anybody got anything to say in 30 seconds? Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> and, and I just want to thank you again, Allison, because the thing is, is that, yes, you're a middle class woman, but you're a black woman. And the history of black women developing eclampsia, my daughter had it. And, you know, the doctor turned her loose and I ran back in there and said, she needs to deliver this baby. Well, when would you do it, Dr. Moore? I said, how about today? And she did. They, she had a C-section the next day. Her legs were biggest tree trunks. She had eclampsia, and it's only because I bullied the doctor um, that she and her child are alive today. Thank you. I yield back. Congresswoman Moore is pretty impressive. 
Now, with her words swirling around in your head and punctuating the stuff in your brain, kind of like sirens on a moonless night, let's go back and revisit five major problems confronting healthcare in the United States. Pierre is going to summarize these points for us. Now, as you listen to his summary, I ask you again to think about, to consider what Gwen Moore just said. There are five major parts defined by the National Health Care and Economic Bill of Rights. Let me summarize. One, let's examine the number and distribution of doctors, hospitals, and clinics in the United States. Is it uneven? Some communities have enough, others have too few. Inequalities in the distribution of medical personnel, providers, is matched by inequalities in access to hospitals and clinics. This is particularly severe in rural and semi-rural areas. Two, we are facing challenges in the area of public health as it relates to maternal and child care. Public health and child care health contribute to the national health outcomes. Although strides have been made, large areas of need remain. This is true in our rural communities and far too many urban communities. Third, we cannot be content with what we know about health or disease. We must learn and understand how to prevent and cure disease. This is especially true in the area of special needs for research on mental diseases. We need more mental health hospitals, more outpatient clinics, and more research on early detection to prevent mental health breakdown. Fourth, we must deal with the high cost of individual medical care. The principal reason why people do not obtain the medical care they need is they cannot afford to pay for it. This is not only true for needy persons, it is also true for working and self-supporting persons. Many families, terrified of medical expenses, put off calling a provider until the time is long past when a doctor could have helped. Fifth, sickness creates a loss of earnings. It does not simply create medical bills, it cuts off income. Now, before I comment on any of this, I want you to listen to the words of Watson B. Miller former administrator and budget director for the executive branch. It's startling. I believe, however, that the goal of a national health care program is to assure medical, hospital, and related service to everyone who needs these services without regard to employment, source of income, or ability to pay, and that no individual should be excluded from access to ready and needed medical care. Complete coverage, though not the only method, does represent the simplest and most effective way to ensure that services are not stratified, which would lead to potentially lower access by the needy. Complete coverage also makes for simplicity and ease of administration. The greater the simplicity of the system, the more likely a fuller utilization by the people. Now you're going to be shocked by what you're about to hear. I want to preface it by saying that German philosopher Hegel once wrote that the only thing men and women really learn 
from history is that people learn nothing from history. There was another writer who said the same thing, but in a more hard-boiled way. He said, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Now, what I'm about to say is pretty startling. Aside from the clip that you heard from the amazing member of Congress, Gwen Moore, the entirety of the remaining narratives were from a discussion held around Senate Bill 1606. What's significant about Senate Bill 1606? These were ideas that were put forward in the spring and summer of 1946 during the presidency of one Harry S. Truman. Seventy-three summers ago, we not only had a grasp on the nation's health care crisis, but we had a robust plan to fix it. And here we are, 73 years later, still talking about the same things. And who is at risk? The most vulnerable among us. So my question is, is it a crime 